0: Would you please join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, it's almost impossible to comprehend the gravity of what we just sang. We were your enemies, rebelling against you, and yet you sent Jesus to die for our sins. Lord, you loved us. And while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Lord, we can only say thank you. It's so overwhelming to think that we can be in your presence, that we do one day have a seat at your table, that even now Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. Lord, we do thank you. But Lord, all the gratitude we feel in our hearts, we recognize that countless millions and billions around the world are still lost. We thank you, Lord, for the missionaries who are taking the gospel around the world. We thank you for organizations like the Gideons that are spreading your word everywhere it's possible. Lord, we desire for you to return, to put an end to all the foolishness of this world, but we also desire your will be done And we pray that many more lost souls would be saved. And Lord, for those of us who do know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the great privilege and responsibility we have to be your witnesses. And Lord, the way we live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves every day is a witness to a lost and dying world. Lord, I thank you for the ministry of our church. I thank you for the preaching of your word. And I pray... As we open up your word tonight, that you will give me your spirit's power to proclaim the truth well. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and impress upon all of our hearts the richness of the truths in our text tonight. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to give to the work of the kingdom. Lord, through our offerings here at Lakeside to support the work of the local church and the missions we support, we thank you for that privilege. And we also thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to give an over and above gift to the Gideons for their work of distributing the word of God around the world. Lord, we again say thank you that you made us your enemies, your children. We ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank the Lord always for the opportunity to share the word of God. And tonight, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to a few verses at the very beginning of 2 Peter. Since I was a young boy I loved to read. Now over the years the form of reading has changed but I've always read and most of my adult life as I contemplated this I think I've spent more time reading than almost anything else. Certainly in the former life I had as a lawyer, reading was an essential part of what I did, so I read all the time. And that didn't change when I started going to seminary and became a pastor. I still spend more time reading every day than doing anything else. I read a lot of material. Some of it is not so spiritual. It's college football season, so I read a lot about that. But I also read about world events. I want to know what's going on. I read Christian materials. I read, of course, the scriptures. And I read a lot about Christian culture. In fact, I read a lot about the state of evangelical Christianity. I have since I came to faith in 1993. I'm not talking about liberal Christianity that years ago jettisoned the Bible and their are more social clubs. I'm talking about the Christianity in America where people say Jesus is the only way to salvation and they profess a love for his word. Churches like Lakeside, churches like my wife and I have belonged to since we've been married. In 30 years as a believer, I've been reading and I've been following and I've been watching a change in what has occurred. On the one hand, nothing ever changes. There's nothing new under the sun. But within the conservative circles of evangelicalism that we inhabit, I've noticed an alarming trend. More and more people reject the word of God. Again, I'm not talking about our culture that doesn't know anything. They're lost and blind. Of course, they reject it. But people who know who should know better, who go to churches, reject the Word of God. Sometimes they do it specifically. They just say the Bible doesn't mean what we think it means and what everybody has always thought it means. But other times it's more subtle. They reject it with their way of life. Now, I don't think about these things at Lakeside because I see suddenly a danger that our elders are going to go astray. We work very hard to stay unified, and one of the blessings that Lakeside has been given by the Lord is an elder board that takes all of this seriously. The reason it concerns me is because I know because of the way the world has changed, whereas 30 years ago when I was first saved, most of what a Christian heard came through their local church. That's not the case anymore. With social media and the internet and all of the various forms in which you can be exposed to teaching, people are being influenced by teaching around the world. And sadly, not all of that influence is good, specifically when it comes to the sufficiency of the Word of God. I think American Christianity, the conservative evangelical church, is in great danger, but not from the places that we think. Certainly, our government is increasingly hostile to us. I don't think that's the big issue. Our culture certainly despises us. I don't think that's the threat. Political games cause us all kinds of problems. Hollywood causes us all kinds of problems. The education system, in a secular sense, is all against But none of those are what are most concerning to me for my fellow believers. What's most concerning is more and more churches and pastors and believers turning to something other than the Scriptures for their daily needs. And people in good churches are being influenced, but not in a positive way. More so today than at any time since I've been saved, I see lived out in what used to be conservative American evangelicalism, the truths and the warnings of Paul in Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It's happening in real time all around us. And there's a symptom of this problem that evidences what I'm talking about more and more Christians and evangelical churches are convinced that the Bible just isn't enough for them. They're convinced that they need the insights of secular culture. They need the insights of the scholars and academics of modern thinking and modern philosophy. In fact, they become more and more convinced and it's all around us that they need to go to the experts, not the church, to deal with all the troubles of life. Life is hard. Things are difficult. And so they need to turn to people that can really help them, not just the church. Well, sure, I can ask the church to pray, but if I want real help, I've got to go to the experts. Sadly, this type of deceit has taken hold everywhere. People think, well, the Bible does address some things. It's good for some things tells me how to be saved, but my problems are so unique, the world is so different that God's word 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago really can't understand what I'm going through. That's why I need the experts. And if by chance the experts in the Bible clash, well really the Bible just needs to be reinterpreted because the Bible didn't understand things. I saw all this before I was a pastor And there was a certain interest in it. But as a pastor, it takes on a different dimension. Because this is dangerous. It's dangerous for the health of the church. It's dangerous for the health of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's completely unnecessary. Because as I will show you tonight from the Scriptures, if you truly know Jesus Christ and your Lord and Savior, and you have a copy of the Scriptures, and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you in you, you have everything you need. You don't need to turn to outside experts. You don't need to turn to the culture and the world to explain things. God's Word and God's power is sufficient for you if you'll only believe it. A year or so ago, when I was looking for a new book to study and teach through, I turned to Second Peter because Peter was addressing a lot of the issues of our day. False teachers were coming into the church and leading people astray, teaching them different doctrines contrary to Scripture, and that type of thing is happening in real time all around us in churches all over our country. And I knew Second Peter brings things back to the basics. Peter proclaims the truth, and in the first few verses of his book, he gives us astounding promises of what God's already done for his children. In fact, these opening verses, even though they're very short, we could spend weeks studying because of the depth that's there, but even in the short time we have tonight, we're going to see proof that God has given us all that we need. So while my outline is not catchy, it will guide our study. It's really tonight in this scripture, we're going to see three proofs that God has given us all we need to live life in this fallen world. So follow along with me in your own Bibles as I read the first four verses of Second Peter, and then we'll dive into our study. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Again, in these few verses, we're going to see three proofs that God has given us as his children all that we need to live our lives to his glory. And the first proof is this. God has given us faith to believe. God has given us faith to believe. Now, because this is an introduction, it's going to take a verse or a section to get to my ultimate point. But as we begin this, we see Peter identifying himself as the author of the book. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. For time's sake, I'm just going to summarize things. I encourage you to be a Berean and look in the Scriptures to see if these things are so, but I'm just going to summarize things without giving you all the references that I had in my original study notes. But in the early church, Peter was perhaps the most well-known apostle. He was one of Jesus' closest confidants on the earth. All 12 of the early disciples were significant. They had a crucial role in Jesus' life and ministry, But among the 12, Peter was part of the inner circle. And after the day of Pentecost, when he preached, he perhaps had one of the most prominent roles. So when he says Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, he's making it clear this isn't just a letter from some guy named Peter. This is the Peter. This is the disciple that was with Jesus. It's interesting, if you read in Scripture, everywhere where there's a list of the twelve Peter's name comes first he had a natural prominence and yet he was a regular man he didn't have any specific learning he was a fisherman he worked hard blue collar work and before the day of Pentecost after things were gone and he was wondering about Jesus having died at one point he went back to fishing that's what he knew But in his life, without his learning, he was still proud and arrogant. He argued with the other apostles about who was the greatest. And I say he's arrogant because he's the one, when Jesus said, you're all going to leave me, he said, Lord, if they all fall away, I'm here for you. I've got your back. And we understand what happened. He failed spectacularly. In a humiliating sense, he turned his back on Jesus just as Jesus told him he would. And yet... Jesus restored Peter, and Jesus gave Peter the charge to feed my sheep, to care for my sheep, and Peter was transformed. He became an even greater man, and he had humility, but he also had the power of God supporting him. So this famous Peter begins his letter, by just identifying himself, and he identifies himself in two ways with humility and authority he says i'm a bond servant that's just the word for slave and this is his way of saying look i'm here to do the bidding of my master who is jesus this isn't peter giving his opinion on what should be he's speaking as the servant of jesus christ but he's not just the slave of jesus christ he's also the messenger of jesus christ he's a sent one he's an apostle The apostles had a unique role in the early church. They were the eyewitnesses of Jesus and they were the authoritative teaching at that time. So Peter is making it clear, I'm the servant of Christ, but I'm also speaking with authority as an apostle. And here's what he had to say. He says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's likely that Second Peter was written to the same group of people that First Peter was written to. There's a reference in Second Peter 3, 1 that this is the second letter I'm writing to you. And First Peter was written to a group of believers in what is now modern-day Turkey. But when I started reading this and studying this originally, and it says to those who have received, I start thinking, who is this to? And I wasn't thinking about what it's actually saying, which is far more significant. Geography isn't the point of Peter's words. It's the work of God. He says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Again, I first read it saying, well, this describes all believers, and it does. And yet the reality is the meaning is about God and what he did. By saying those who have received, he's making it clear, these people were given something. We were given something. This isn't because of anything we did. This is because God sovereignly chose to give us faith. We received what he gave us. A faith is the same kind as ours. In all likelihood, the primary emphasis is Peter saying, look, we're apostles, and apostles were prominent. But he's saying, your faith is just like our faith. We all have the same thing. So here's the point. God gives the gift of faith to his children. These aren't just throwaway words. They're a proclamation of the majesty of the Lord in graciously giving salvation to sinners. There's a lot in this section And God certainly uses a process to bring people to himself. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, which is why the word of God is so essential to everything. But we didn't respond to the word of God because we're smarter than other people. Certainly was what I thought when I was first saved. I figured it out. It's not because of us. It's because of what God is doing in us. God is at work. God took the initiative first John 4:10 and this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And God did that work in our heart to draw us to himself. No one can come to me John 6:44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Paul summed up I think very well what Peter is saying in just these first few words that we've received a faith. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is what Pastor Steve has been preaching on. The sovereignty of God and salvation. Peter is proclaiming very clearly it wasn't us. He's not writing to those who figured it out. He's writing to those that God graciously gave the gift of faith to. And again, it's a faith that's the same for every believer. Be it an apostle of God or the lowliest saint. The apostles were those who were speaking out scripture. Their teaching was authoritative. And Peter is saying, look... What God gave us is what God gave you. We have equal status. We all receive the same faith. The salvation we have, you have. The security in Christ we have, you have. The hope of heaven that we have, you have. At the cross, all believers are equal equally loved by God, equally forgiven by God, equally provided for by God. The promises that Peter's talking about are for every believer. The work of Jesus was applied to all of us equally if we truly have been given the gift of faith. And this gift is applied to us in a very specific way. Peter says, to those who have received a faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter's grounding everything that follows, including the sufficiency that we'll talk about tonight, and the reality of God's working to save us. We receive faith, it was a gift of God, and it involves when we receive that faith, an important but often neglected theological principle. When we were given the gift of faith, we were given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness refers to God's justice, God's correct and proper evaluation of right and wrong and sin, and something miraculous is involved in this text. And it helps us see what a unique place we have in this world and why God's provision is sufficient for us when we recognize how God sees us. On our own, if I were to ask you, how much righteousness does a human being have? We know the answer, it's none. The scriptures don't sugarcoat that. For example, in Romans chapter three, verses 10 and 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the state we find ourselves in. And we understand from the scriptures, according to the Bible, the wages of sin is death. We were God's enemies, as the song says. That's what the scriptures say. But here's the truth that Peter is wrapping up in this introductory verse. Verse. Our sinful lives deserve death but Jesus died in the place of sinners and by placing our faith in him, not only did we get forgiveness for our sins but we get credit for his perfect obedience. Jesus obeyed perfectly. He never sinned. He obeyed all the law. Understand this, when God looks at you and me, that's what he sees. Peter's highlighting truth taught throughout the New Testament. When Jesus looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have to tell you, when I look in the mirror in the morning and shave, that's not what I see. I know who I am. I'm redeemed by the Lord, but I know my struggle. But when God looks at me, he doesn't see the struggle. He sees Jesus. And that's the same for you as well. Philippians 3, 8, and 9 describes this well. More than that, I count all things to be lost and view in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through... Faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The theological term for this is the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but the important point for us is that God has given this to us. He's given us forgiveness of sins, but he's also given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not what the world sees, but that's what God sees, and that's the reality. Peter continues, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's not an uncommon greeting, but it's not insignificant. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Peace is what we have in abundance because we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus. And he wants more of this for the believers. He's asking for God to give more of it and he explains how this comes about in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's what he knows we need and we don't get that from the experts. We don't get that from the culture. We don't get that from the world. We get that from the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ which comes through his word. This isn't some sentimental wish. This is reality. So I quickly went through a lot of theology, a lot of things that are wrapped up in this verse But the beginning point for everything that I'm saying is this, God's already given us faith. He's given us the gift of salvation. He's given us a new life in Christ and we have all we need when it comes to peace with God. So the first proof that God has given us all we need is that God has given us faith to believe. The second is this, God has given us power to live. God has given us power to live. Verse 3 says this, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. I can't emphasize enough how powerful this promise is. If you don't hear anything else I have to say tonight, believe this part of God's word. Because the implications for us are profound. Both in terms of the hope we have because of what's here. But also of what it says about us if we don't believe it. Peter again is talking about God. This is God working. This isn't us figuring it out. This is what God is freely giving to us. Said, seeing that his divine power has granted to us. In other words, God uses all the power at his disposal to accomplish this for every single one of his children and that's every one of you that are here. We have access to more grace and more peace and more knowledge about God than we could ever imagine because God, through his power, has granted it to us. The power of God is in our lives whether we think it or not. You understand, you have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. And the Scriptures make it clear, God uses His power so that you can live the life He calls you to live. That's why Paul could say in Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And when we see what's been given to us, we can't ever underestimate the gift of God. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now let me work backwards. Nothing in your life is apart from life and godliness. That covers everything. Every aspect of your waking life is dealing with life and godliness. And Peter is telling us, the word of God is telling us that God through his divine power, the power of God himself has already given you everything you need everything pertaining to life and godliness is emphatic it's comprehensive and it's true the failure to believe that i think is the key source of what i was talking about in the introduction why in the world would anyone go to the culture to go to the world to go to the so-called experts to figure out how to live life when God has promised that His power has already given you everything you need. It's one of the reasons the church is weak and believers struggle. It's not just because we sin and we do and we have those struggles because we don't believe the promises of God of what He's already given us and Satan certainly doesn't want you to believe it. If you are a child of God, there is nothing that God does not provide for you. And the emphasis that comes over and over, and it's actually going to be my third point, but verse 3 continues, how does this happen? Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. In other words, the provision of God and His power, He gives us His Holy Spirit, but He works through His Word. It keeps coming back to knowledge. It keeps coming back to the Word. Again, this is God and His work. He called us by His glory, His excellence, and we're drawn to Jesus by God. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God's power has given us all we need. Now at times we're weak and we're slow and we don't read our Bibles and we don't know what's there. It's why we have a counseling ministry at Lakeside. It's why Pastor Steve every Sunday says, if you have a concern or question, come forward. The elders want to help you. I get it. We, We don't always know everything that's in the Bible, but it's there and it's there for you and God's provided it. Before you go outside and look to those people who really know what's going on, trust God and his word. And be careful. If you deny this verse, you're denying God. If you ever decide God's not giving me enough to handle what I'm facing, not only are you calling a God a liar, which is blasphemy, But you're denying that he has the power to do what he said he's already done. God has promised. He has given. We do have all that we need for life and godliness. It always breaks my heart when I see people turning elsewhere. They're looking to the world. They're looking here. They're looking there. The last place they look is to the only place with the answer. It's God and his word. So the second proof that God has given us all we need is that God has given us power to live. It's his power he's given us. And the third and final point is this. And it's related to the others and they all fit together. God has given us his promises. God has given us his promises. That's another way of saying it, is God has given us his word. Peter says this in verse four. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. If you think just for a moment about our world, there's more corruption than we've ever seen. And lust here just talking about the desires of the world. All of us want to be apart from that. We want to get away from it. He's telling you, you already are. Yes, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. And again, the initiative is God. He granted to us over and over. You see in these short verses, God is working, God is working, God is working. That's why I have confidence to believe it because it's God, not anyone else. He's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. It's just talking about the word of God. They are supposed to be precious. They are supposed to be the greatest value. That's why it's so offensive to God when Christians carelessly toss aside the Bible and go looking for the real answers to life's problems. We should have the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. We have to believe this. We have to treasure this. I pray that if you attend Lakeside, you do because we so emphasize God's word, but you actually have to apply it in your life and live by this word. Over and over, the Bible is filled with warnings about those who neglect the scriptures. God will judge that. But as his children, we need to trust him and believe in the promises that he's given us. And he says, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's phrased in such a way that this looks like something that will happen in the future or it may happen or it may not happen. But that's not actually what he's saying. He's saying you already have this. Because of God's giving to us those promises, we are partakers of the divine nature. We have the Spirit of God within us. Christ lives in us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 8, 9, and 10. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If we know Jesus, and we know Jesus because of the promises God's given us, then we are partakers of the divine nature. We're not living this life by ourselves. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of Christ in us and He's working through us to accomplish His purposes. However much you doubt yourself, don't doubt Jesus Christ and His power. And all of this is why we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Reminds us of Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's when we were enemies. But because of all of these things that God has done for us, now we are seated at his table. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We're no longer in the grip Of the corruption of this evil world, this domain of darkness. Verse 13 of Colossians 1 For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let me encourage you. I don't know specifically your struggles, I know this world makes our lives hard. Is corrupt and evil. I know our flesh still pulls us away from doing the will of God. We have all these battles to fight. Can I assure you from the Word of God, you have everything you need to fight the battle? You already have everything you need for life and godliness, and it's not found somewhere else. It's found in God and His Word. God's promises are precious. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He will complete the work he started in you. He works all things together for your good. Nothing can separate you from his love. He's gone to prepare a place in heaven for you and one day you'll be there with him. All of these promises and countless more, these precious and magnificent promises have been given to us by God. Let me encourage you times are difficult. This world takes its toll. Life takes its toll. Sin takes its toll. The weaknesses of our our bodies takes their toll. But understand this, your hope is not found anywhere in the world. You've already been given by God all you need. You can do this You can do everything God called you to do, everything pertaining to life and godliness because he's given you faith, he's given you power, and he's given you his promises. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I recognize my limitations as a communicator to convey to your people truths that should be of great comfort. Lord, I pray that your spirit will do the work that my words can't possibly do. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who need encouragement. Lord, I know many believers who struggle and they're not looking to other things for answers because they want to be rebellious. Lord, they're just confused and they're hurt and they don't know where to turn. I pray tonight that you'll remind them that they can turn to you, that you've provided for them. And I pray that you'll remind them to turn to your word. Lord, all the answers for life, all the answers for the struggles we face are found in your word. And you've given us the faith to believe and you've given us your power to obey. And so I pray that you would encourage them tonight. And Lord, there no doubt are some who hear my voice who don't truly know Jesus Christ. Lord, they may go through religious motions, they may do things, but they have never truly repented of their sins. Lord, I pray tonight they would see you for who you are in your glory and your majesty and your holiness. And they would realize that they are not righteous. That if they were to die and stand before you today, they would have no hope. But Lord, I pray that you would help them understand that Jesus died in the place of sinners. And that if they'll place their faith in him, they can have eternal life. Lord, we love you. Help us live our lives in a way that brings you glory. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior. We say thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.